Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tallett. Alexa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Yuel? I'm so excited to have repeat guest Paul Bloom joining us and also to be drinking beer. So these are, unfortunately, not always guaranteed with our podcast these days. We've taken a lot of shit, but we have Paul Bloom, we have beer, so I think it's going to be a good one. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be back. I will give it to you first. What are you drinking? Um, I am drinking, I, I, I'm not drinking beer, but I'm drinking uh, uh, gin and tonic. Oh, and, yep, he uh, held it up. I can verify for the listeners up, that yep. that is. And with, uh, with um, Roku Gin. Which is wow. Japanese. Oh, that's that like looks cool really. Gin that looks like a full professor gin. <laughs> and, and, that's, that's right. <laughs> this is not an associate professor <laughs> gin. No. This is this is an emeritus professor gin, actually. Uh, yeah, you know. So yeah, it, this is the full the full gin. Yeah, uh, at our level, we mainly have to make our own. So <laughs> <laughs> in bathtub gin <laughs> in a bathtub. Yeah, yeah. right. There's adjunct gin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's getting cut. Um, Alexa, what about you? Um, I am drinking a beer from Urban Artifact called Squeezebox Strawberry Midwest Fruit Tart. So wow, there's a that, lot, of, wow. lot of words in there, a lot yeah. of taste suggestions. I'm excited. A lot of lot of fruit of different kinds. There's also a picture of an accordion. So there is. I could I could attest to that. All right, shall we crack them open? Oh shoot! I was supposed to say what I was drinking. I forgot. Um, yeah, what are you drinking? Again, it's like a, a like a special one this time, actually, because this is from my friend Dylan, who works uh, at Blood Brothers Brewing, one of our fine local breweries here in Toronto, and he gifted me this Entheogen IPA, um, and it says it has Cryo Cascade, Idaho Seven, and Sabro. I assume those are all hops. So thanks, Dylan. Nice. Wow. That's hoppy. I like it. How's your juice squeeze? Strawberry squeeze box. Um, yeah. Very strawberry. Um, <laughs> does, does it taste like beer? <laughs> uh, no, I would say that it tastes like, well, maybe like carbonated strawberry ice cream, which as <laughs> our most great. loyal listeners know, ice cream and beer is my favorite combination. Yeah, really. This is like the most Alexa beer you've ever had, maybe. <laughs> And Paul, I assume your drink turned out okay. It is smooth and wonderful. Amazing. All right. So as recent listeners know, Alexa's remodeling her kitchen. Last time we talked about it, they had hauled some lasers in there. Uh-huh. Uh, and I hope that uh, that all went well. Your house looks like it's, you know, not burned down. So I assume the laser thing, you know, uh, was successful. Uh, yep. So I now have countertops. Um, but although my house is not burned down, when I came home two nights ago, I like looked up in the garage and there was a hole in the ceiling. Oh, no. um, and I was like, uh, this um, goes to show you the difference between Megan and I. So I was like, what the fuck? They need to repair that hole. And Megan was like, oh, my God. Do you think that somebody fell through the roof? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what a nice thought. <laughs> um, but anyways, I don't think that someone fell through the roof. I think someone might have stuck their leg through the roof. But this is this was a consequence of we are getting like a a hood above the oven. Um so yeah, people act as though this is like an important safety feature. And originally we had a microwave above our oven um that had this like fan thing in it, but there was like no way nowhere for that to actually go. So there was like no like ventilation system attached to it was just like a placebo fan that would like move the fumes around i guess so um so yeah so now we have a hood um and it is connected to a ventilation system um which somebody had to go into the attic to create um thus causing the hole in my ceiling so that's the most exciting update alexa i have a question for you yeah imagine i offer you the following deal okay all of your teaching obligations go away And in exchange, you have to publish, I don't know, two more papers a year, let's say. So we raise our expectations on research a little bit. Take the deal or don't take the deal? Definitely not. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. What about you, Yoel? You know, much as I, with my tone, suggested that was a surprising answer, um, and in our pre-show discussion, 
may have suggested that I would take such a deal. I actually don't think I would, because as much as I complain about teaching, I think I enjoy it, which is what we're going to be talking about today, at least in part. But Paul, what do you think? Yeah, same, same. Love-hate relationship. Um, I have at times in my career volunteered to teach extra courses like seminars on topics I liked. Uh, and and I, we're going to talk a lot about what I think what we love about teaching. On the other hand, I'm always complaining about it. And, you know, and if somebody said, well, reduce your teaching load, I'd say yes. Yeah. So like, what's, what's the optimal amount of teaching? Like, let's say you just got to decide how much you, you were uh, obliged to teach. How much would it be? For me, it'd be a course a semester, maybe like a, a seminar, an interesting lecture course, putting aside mentoring, which, which is, is sort of a separate issue. I, I kind of always like to be teaching. I find it rewarding. But then again, I'm now teaching two courses or sort of one and a half courses. And that's a bit of a, a different thing. You, you fiercely resent those courses and especially the students in them is what you're saying. Uh, oh, I, I, I actually, I have, to, I have a, I, I only, I hate some of the students. Okay. You know which ones you are. <laughs> yeah, I know which ones. Alexa, what about you? What's your optimal teaching? I guess it depends on whether I can change my other responsibilities. So I think I would take it. My teaching load is two, two. Um, right now I'm teaching three courses, so I'm teaching an extra course that I'm getting paid for. Um, and I would do that regularly if I were recognized for that. So like if I had like a reduced expectation for research, I would do that. Um, but I wouldn't teach more than three, I don't think. Um, three feels like a lot. And I think four would feel like really a lot. Um and yeah, maybe maybe if I yeah get to totally choose my workload, I I would choose two. Um, yeah, keep it as is. Wait, I thought you just said if you were able to trade in some research expectation for an extra course, you would take that. So yeah, but if I can keep my if I can get lower research expectations and teach two classes, that's the dream. Oh no, that's not on the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's your optimal? I, I think like you, one a semester. Uh, I kind of like doing lectures, actually. So I think I would want one lecture, one seminar. And I mean, I feel like we're very lucky here and we actually get close to that. So I'm going to be doing mine in the in the same term, in the um, term that starts in January. But yeah, it's, it's one seminar and then it's a lecture in two sections. So I teach the same thing twice, which I haven't done in a long time. And it's an interesting experience. I feel like the people who go second and get a better deal out of that. Do you um, retell jokes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's all scripted. It's all <laughs> the trick is just to make it look spontaneous, you know? <laughs> I, taught a summer, I taught a summer course, which was um, one hour and then another hour with a different group, same material. And on the last class, I did something utterly humiliating which is I had this really interesting, engaging story classroom exercise for the first class. It went really well. So for the second class, I decided I'll start off with it. It went really well. And then towards the end of the second class, I said, I want to do this interesting, entertaining exercise. Of course, I remember doing it, but it must have been the first class. Oh, no. And then, and then I started explaining it exactly. Then. And finally, one of the students said, uh, Professor, uh, I think we already did this. Oh, my gosh. Remember, you so know, funny. I mentioned the chickens. That was my answer. And I say, oh, yeah. And it was, there's no way to recover. I just, just, <laughs> you just like, just like, just out. Human, yeah, yeah. <laughs> class ends early. <laughs> Everybody go. Home. <laughs> so humiliating. Okay. So, I mean, we all complain about teaching, right? And I, I think it's kind of obvious what's uh, a pain about it. Like grading is not fun. Dealing with like uh, course admin overhead is not fun. Um, some students are annoying. So like, why would nobody give it up? Maybe Alexa is the most teaching enthusiastic person you can say first. Yeah. Well, okay. So I guess one way if I've, I've arrived at my like dedication to teaching is um, that when we think about what we're trying to do as researchers, I think that we often imagine that we could have some kind of like impact on society. And um, especially with social psychology, I guess what that would look like is maybe like you discover something that impacts people like you discover some kind of like intervention or um, manipulation that would like have a positive influence on people that could be like scaled up in a way that 
um, would have like real consequences for people. And basically like most of the things that we study in social psychology are so subtle that the possibility that they would have more of an impact than you could have as a teacher in a class where you are directly communicating with your students on a regular basis. Um, you can serve in a supportive relationship to them. You can, you know, like help them with their careers. You can expose them to like really awesome ideas. Like it just seems like a direct path to the kind of positive impact that we might hope to have as researchers. And I also feel like there's much more like immediate um, feeling that you are having that impact. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's one reason that I wouldn't give it up. Paul, I don't. I, I know that you don't like to help people. So what's what's your explanation? <laughs> well, so well, that really that really paralyzed me. Um, <laughs> I I I I might not like to help. I, I like the idea of making a difference. I actually, I totally agree with Alexa, and 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 particularly um, about the time aspect of it, which is. You know, I think sometimes we do stuff which really does matter, which makes a big difference in our field, which maybe makes a difference in the world. But, you know, you, you do it and then six months later, a year later, maybe you get, you get some feedback and so on. But teaching is immediate. Teaching, if you do, if you do make people's lives better or at least entertain them or amuse them or interest them or surprise them, you get it right away. So. And so it's a nice mix doing both teaching and research because teaching, uh, you just, you just get the buzz right away. There's also a sort of maybe a kind of unseemly pleasure too, to, to, you know, uh, which is particularly for lecturing, say, which is, it's kind of cool to, to command an audience to impress people, to make them laugh, to be the focus of attention. It's a bit of an ego trip. So, you know, I'll confess to that, even in a seminar, to be able to run a seminar. To, to be the one, you know, in charge and affecting people. And it's kind of a, it's often a, a tightrope act because if you fail, you fail publicly. <laughs> but, um, but when it works out well, it's very satisfying in a way that any performance is satisfying. Mm-hmm. And a seminar with six people and a lecture with a thousand people, it's all a performance. Yeah. I, um, I didn't anticipate that I would like that aspect of, especially the like large audience, um, of teaching as much as I do. Like the first time I, the biggest class I've ever taught was 400 students. And um, in my department that gets like treated as a special category. And so uh, leading up to that, I was like dreading it quite a bit. Like I would have like nightmares about it before I actually taught the class. And then like the first lecture, I was like, oh, this is really like, it felt really exhilarating. Um, I think for the unseemly reasons that you described, Paul, it's like, wow, all these people are looking at me and like, uh, they're paying attention to me. And sometimes they laugh or, you know, they like respond to my questions. It's like, um, a cool feeling. I mean, it's also extremely terrifying, but yeah. Is, is there like an onstage Alexa that comes out in those situations? I would be really curious to know what people think about that I think that I'm very consistent <laughs> across situations generally. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I would, it would be interesting to ask. I have, I've had some of my friends watch me teach, so I don't know what they would say. But that's a good question. Does your voice change? Do your way you move change? Your mannerisms? I mean, I wear different outfits, obviously. My performance outfits. And my Britney Spears microphone, as my friend would say. Oh, really? You get one of those special mics that like attaches to <laughs> yeah. your head? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you dress up still. <laughs> um, very minimally, actually. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't wear it. Like right now I'm wearing a dowdy looking green sweatshirt. I wouldn't wear this to teach. But Oh, I like that sweatshirt. I do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You well, do you get gussied up to teach? Well, you know, more and more I've been getting lazy about it. I, I used to, for the big lectures, I would at least wear uh, a shirt with buttons in the front. Um, and then nice jeans or slacks and like shoes, not sneakers. And it, I mean, and anybody who has to like teach at a business school, or I guess like have a real job where you have to dress, you know, more nicely is probably laughing right now that that for me was like a lot. And I've kind of declined from that, (laughs) (laughs) that that very minimal high. (laughs) To like, I I do still always wear not a t shirt, um, yeah. but you know the jeans have got more comfortable. 
I'm on my feet for like in these big lectures, there three hours for one. So I would like, I changed to wear sneakers and yeah, it's just, you know, as I get older, it's like, I, I just, everything about me is getting worse. I think. What would you say the norm is at Toronto? Um, it really varies, but I, I think it's pretty casual. Like, I, I think you could show up in a t-shirt and jeans and nobody would think it was weird. Yeah. I My guess is that the norm at UA is slightly different. Like, I feel like people mostly look like nice, like business casual or something like that. I'm definitely on the low end. <laughs> is that in your like yearly feedback? It's like, oh, that sweater though, Alexa. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you guys have covered this at some point, but but when it comes to sexist bias and teaching evaluations, I'm you know I could wear the same thing every every class, you know, kind of kind of the same outfit, button down shirt, pants, a blazer. I had a blazer to it, and that's it. And it could be the same, and no one has ever commented on my clothes. And to me, that's a success. Um, but I know I have a lot of female colleagues who say they get comments on, on their clothes. Sometimes like not just not saying, oh, no, it's not attractive or whatever, but just say, oh, she wore the same thing twice in a row. Oh my God. How annoying. Yeah. Do you get appearance related comments, Alexa? The last appearance related comment I got, um, was not about my outfit. It was like a, it was on zoom and it was like a chat comment. And the person was like, you're so pretty. Oh, that's kind of sweet. <laughs> I don't know whether to say oh. Then my yeah, I don't know either. I mean, my I, my other students like were like, "Don't you just immediately assume that that person is trying to get a good grade?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> not at all." Um, but I don't get a lot of outfit related comments, which I think is because um, my outfits are pretty unremarkable. Mm, I think Paul is right though that like as a man, like. Paul, I feel like your charm is that you're short, sort of like disheveled looking, you know, and it's just, it just, it <laughs> just works. A, I don't get it. You're so pretty. But <laughs> That's for later. Um, my and, dis- dishevel- disheveled looking. Thank you. You know, you could, you could do that. You could show up or like, yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, the people who teach in jeans and t-shirts are, are dudes, right? And you can the, la- like, the latitude for men is enormous. Yeah. You could cut, you could, you could dress up in a three piece suit. You could dress in, in, in jeans and shorts and jeans and a t-shirt and uh you have to go really really strange before it draws comment yeah yeah well we should do that experiment like how weird yeah do i have to dress before people start saying something i haven't done that experiment but i've asked my students like what would you what would happen if i just like showed up in my pajamas like would you say something to me and they said we would not say anything to you but we'd be like all on the group me texting each other about it what is a group me Oh, is that like an American thing? I maybe oh, I'm just weird. ignorant. It's like a, it's basically like an app that's designed for group texting. Um, so I think like most of the classes at UA, the students quickly form a group me for them, and so they like will text each other and be like, "Oh, when is this assignment due? Or do we have class today? Or whatever." Um, and I think maybe there's some fast way to like put everyone on it or something. Uh, so it's just a way for them to like group chat each other while the while the lecture is going on. Yeah, there was a thing like that uh, that the kids here were using. I now forget what it's called. It got shut down because it was anonymous. and Yik Yak? Yeah, that's the yeah. one. That's <laughs> yeah. the one. That, and I totally, like, I I would check that, you know, to see what they were talking about. Yeah, I don't think they take the pulse of the undergrads. Yeah, exactly. And they were, when you were lecturing, you would look yeah. at it later? Yeah, I would look at and it And what were they saying about you? Uh, usually they were, like, pretty complimentary. They were never like, this guy sucks, or like, I can't believe he's repeating that story or whatever. So I guess that's... that's I can't believe he did the same so activity di- twice. Yeah, he's so disheveled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Comb your hair, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it was mainly like, um, they would make jokes and stuff. It seemed a little distracting, to be honest. Like, I don't know if it's great for learning, but but yeah, it's... Um, I, I don't know what they're on. For all I know, they are on GroupMe, and I'm just like, unaware of it. So... All of us have taught like kind of the big lecture courses where Paul, you've taught, I think the biggest one, right? Like a thousand person intro class. I, t- I regularly taught intro psych and I might be teaching it again for the first time at Toronto next semester. But I taught a course at Yale called Moralities of Everyday Life, which was um, very large. It had to be held in Battelle Chapel. I think it was the contender um, for the largest course until Lori Santos broke all the records with her happiness course. Oh, yeah. You just can't compete with her. Can't compete with Lori. No. 
No, but yeah, so that that really must have felt like you're putting on a show for these people, right? Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. And I would, it took up a lot of my mental energy. I would really prepare. I'd want to do a good job. I was, I, I get, it, it's, it's a little bit what Alexa was saying about the experience, which is right before I start to talk, I am tremendously nervous. Mm. My heart's pounding and I just feel really awful. And then once I start talking, I calm down and I feel, and I start to enjoy it. And it's actually the same giving, giving talks in general, actually. Do you find lecturing or leading discussion more effortful? Oh, that's interesting. They're both effortful in different ways. Lecturing is just the stress of standing up there and trying to present yourself. But, but leading a discussion, sometimes my style is very enthusiastic. My style is like a lot of energy and trying to get, get people. I, I think it's sort of infectious when you do this and, but it, it's, but it, particularly if this, if the class isn't giving me any much back. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite sort of classes, obviously enough, is a seminar where everyone's really into it. And then I could kind of relax. It's less tiring. And I just kind of just let the conversation go and just guide it. But if I have to kind of squeeze it out of people, it's, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alexa, what do you think? I think, um, I don't know. I've been thinking about my approach to, to discussion-based classes recently. So <clears throat> I don't know, like trying to decide what the right balance is between guiding the discussion and letting undergraduates sort of like take it where they want to. Um, and for me, I guess if I'm, if I'm trying to really like accomplish a sort of like deliberate path in a discussion based class. So like an extreme example, I guess would be kind of like a Socratic approach, but I, I really don't like that approach. Actually. I feel like that's um, you have some like destination that you want them to get to and you're guiding them to that or whatever. But the more that I want there to be some like, like points that they really touch on or some sort of like uh, reasoning path that I want them to follow. I find that very effortful and like it's really hard for me to both try to maintain that and also like listen carefully to what they're saying and like be responsive and things like that. If I am like much more hands-off, which I prefer, but there are downsides to that too, um, then I find it pretty easy. Yeah. If I'm not, if I'm not like trying to go somewhere with a discussion, um, that feels more like talking to friends or whatever. I had a transformation in my teaching style. I used to teach seminars really low key, like, Oh, here's three papers. You know, what do you all think of the papers and do that? And then I I was on sabbatical and I took a a couple of courses in the Yale law school that was sort of being a wannabe lawyer. And I took a constitutional law course, which was a small group course. It's like a seminar Mm -hmm. taught by this guy, Bill Eskridge. And he was a masterful teacher. And he was very, he had a place he wanted us to go. He had actually, he would call on people in an exact way. He'd, he'd sort of assign people viewpoints, say, okay, like, so fine. You're, you're Scalia here. You're going to Scalia, but you're going to be Scalia for the rest of the class. And then you have to answer as Scalia and this kind of, mm-hmm. and, and he, he worked very hard in teaching and it was really good. And then, and then it made me up my game and I became more directive mm-hmm. with the accompanying more effort and more exhausting. But, uh, but it, 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 in some way, I think the students get a little bit more than an overly free flowing class. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, I've, I've also taught classes the way that you described your former self and it can be really fun. Like, you know, and I think that it's also maybe in some ways easier to bond with classes that way, which can be also really helpful for teaching. Um, but sometimes you don't talk about a lot of ideas. (laughs) You know, or like <laughs> they're just talking really, about their yeah. lives. Or kind like, of, yeah. yeah. Which I don't think is useless, but it's like maybe not quite what you're trying to do. Yeah. So I, this is like a really natural lead into something that I wanted to ask you guys is, you know, we're, we've been doing this a while. Um, and do you feel like you've gotten better? And if so, in what ways? Like, are there specific things that you've learned that have made you a better teacher over time? I've, I've gotten better in some ways. I think, I think I, I actually have a list of, you know, I think 20 bits of teaching advice that I picked up, but I put on, on a web every once in a while. Um, and oh, can we, can we put that like, yeah, yeah, a absolutely. Link to the show notes or something. Show notes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just one thing which I've learned, which is, I think, uh, um, important for lecturing particularly, but also for seminars is try to do less. I, 
I, I think when everybody starts, it's like their advisor is sitting in back and they better get all of this stuff and get it right and, and qualify things and so on. And you try to do this enormous dump of information into people's heads and they don't learn as well and they don't enjoy it. So I try to sort of say, okay, I'm just going to a couple of things I want to get done in this lecture, a couple of core ideas. And, um, and then I think, I think it just, it just goes better. And sort of paradoxically, if you try a bit less, students will learn more. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've always admired the way that your slides for talks have very little on them. Um, and I imagine your teaching slides are sort of similar in that way. Yeah, stu- students have been known to complain because yeah. people did PowerPoint with detailed stuff. And my, you know, I have a picture of a dog and then, you know, you know, Mr. Spock, you know, on top of an alligator and then, you know, the word help and so on. And it's impossible to study with my slides. Right, right, right. Alexa, what about you? I really, yeah, I really do hope that I've gotten better over time. Um, I'm trying to think of specific things that have changed. So one thing that I remember changing, and and Paul, you sort of reminded me of this when you were talking about, um, I guess, like our gendered expectations with teaching, is that when I started teaching, um, I was sort of told that I wouldn't get a lot of respect or something like that, or it would be harder for me to get respect I mean, at the time I was also like 27, I guess. And, um, and yeah, beginning teaching social psychology. Um, and they were like, okay, young woman, you know, you're going to need to like make sure your students respect you. And so I tried to like, so how did, how did, I'm just trying to imagine you being a hard ass. Yeah. Like I try, I guess I tried to be more stern or something than I would naturally be. I particularly remember emails like, I would like naturally write an email and it would have like a happy face and like three exclamation points. And I would be be like, like, delete all that, delete all that. Yeah. Like deleting the exclamation points and stuff. Um, And it was just like super unnatural to me. And I'm pretty sure that like I stopped doing that eventually and just like um, acted naturally, I guess. And I think that students responded much better to that. Um, And also like, I, I don't want to say that this is everyone's experience, but I don't, I don't think that I lost any respect because of that. Like, um, I, in my, yeah, in my experience that the students are, are maybe even like overly respectful. Um, like it's harder to get students to like joke around or like, um, yeah, like to tease students than it is to like get them to, to think that I'm, you know, in a position of authority or something like that. So, so what do you do? And this is for both of you with acts of disrespect. So sometimes not malicious. So my examples is sometimes you, I get an email saying, you know, Hey dude, when's the final exam or something, or just like, when's the exam or, you know, you didn't put up the bit. And I feel, I, I never know what to do because it, it does, it does piss me off. But I feel very prissy to say, you should address me as Professor Bloom and give a salutation. I, so I don't know what to do. Okay. And, and, and I just, I'm then a passive aggressive, I guess. My response is very different if it's like in person versus um, in an email. If it's in person, probably what I do is totally let it slide and then afterwards feel annoyed by it. Um, but if it's in an email, I've started being like really deliberate about how I respond and basically saying like, this may not have been your intention, but when I read this, I felt like it was disrespectful. And I think you should know that going forward, because I feel like you probably don't want people to be made to feel disrespected. Um, Oh, that's, that's so good. So I'm really very direct. (laughs) That's interesting. I don't, I don't know that I get these, emails, I guess for my big course, which I don't have anymore, but I did teach intrasocial for uh, a few years, I had TAs who would answer the course emails for me, uh, which was key. That was that was such a great use of TA hours. Um, and then for my smaller classes, I guess it's just like, I don't think there's that many. And if anything, the UTSC students are overly respectful. Mm-hmm. So it's like, dear esteemed professor, sorry to mm-hmm. waste your time with this. Right. <laughs> you know, like that's the opening. Um, occasionally, especially in the big lecture, there were people who would be like obviously distracted by something. Like they would all be like looking at a phone or a screen or something. And then I might stop and be like, hey, what are you guys looking at? 
Like, do you want to share with the class what's going on over there? That looks interesting. You know, like. Do you want to share it with everybody? <laughs> yeah. Let's all see what you're looking at. And then they, they would get embarrassed, you know, because then everybody's yeah. looking at them and then they would stop. So. Have you guys ever kicked someone out of your class? No. Have you? No. 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 Yeah. I mean, I've I've wondered what it would be like because I have no way to back it up. Like if oh, I could, to like if make I, them leave. if I was like you get out of my class, <laughs> and they're like and no, they're like no, <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm not. I'm stand right here, lady. But like, what would be the thing that would cause you to you know want to kick somebody out? Mm, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Like somebody saying something like really awful or, um, yeah, really mean to somebody else in the class or something like that. At at when I taught at Yale in the big lecture hall. I would always have one of my teaching fellows um, prepared to call either the campus police or uh, or the medical services if something went awry. Wow! And there was there were weird things. There was some fraternity thing. There was a a big Valentine's Day thing where somebody came up with flowers for one of the students. Something mildly disruptive, but not so not so weird. The strangest thing which I remember was I'm, I'm on a podium and there's, there's, you know, stairs going up, but then there's a, a sort of place below. And one woman would do yoga during my, my talk, you know, and like, not like, you know, not like twisting her neck or whatever, but like, like sort of handstands and the splits and all that. And it's just so freaky, but I, I, I can't in the middle of my lecture say, Hey, stop doing yoga. Like oh. she, while you were talking, she would yeah. do yoga in the little area in front of the podium. Yes, yes, and it it made me it made me feel like it was some sort of Polynesian ritual or something. <laughs> but it's that's actually kind of cool. But that is definitely something where I would stop and be like, "Hey, what's going on down there? Like, why are you doing yoga? Hey, everybody, check out this lady doing yoga." You know, uh-huh. so this is a little bit of a tangent from just the straight teaching stuff, but like these cultural differences I find so interesting, right? So you obviously um, born and raised in Ontario, Alexa, and then you moved out to Alabama and this is like a very different culture, right? Mm-hmm. And same for me coming here. Yeah. So like what's some of the stuff that you've noticed that's just been like specifically to teaching where you're like, wow, I did not expect that. I'm about to teach next week. Um, Darwin and then the Bible for a class that I'm teaching, which is, uh, it's like a broad, um, foundations of Western thought type of class. Um, very unlike any other class I've, I've taught before. Um, that sounds very, amazing. Yeah. It's really fun for me. I'm like reading all of this stuff that I haven't read before. Um, and so, but I have taught, um, evolution in like psych 101 classes and things like that. And I think that I get responses here that that were like I, that I didn't anticipate coming from Toronto. Um, a lot of people like don't get, I guess, especially if they went to high school in Alabama, they might not get much education on evolution, or they might like have uh, a lot of like church influences that um, totally disagree with evolution. Or yeah, so they're they're evolution education is pretty like spotty. And so I had like a a student in a class when I was talking about evolution. And I guess I was sort of anticipating this in a way because I was like brought it up as like a, you know, you guys might question some of these ideas, like tell me your thoughts or whatever. And then, you know, like one student was like, well, if evolution is true, then why isn't there like a half gorilla, half dolphin? And I was like, (laughs) what? What idea? Like, right, how do you what theory that? of evolution is happening right. in your mind where you're like, this would obviously predict that we would have a half gorilla, half dolphin, and we Take don't that, see Richard that. Doggins. Yeah, seriously. Um, so I bet I bet you were stumped. I was. I don't think I had a good response at all. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> the mix and match theory of evolution. <laughs> That's right. For any two creatures, they should be a creature that combines them, obviously. Huh. Uh, That's pretty good. Oh, I have another really good example, um, which I think you guys will appreciate. So um, I used this like vignette about a brother and sister having sex to talk about the idea that we have like a gut reaction to morality. Um, And in one of my classes, they were like, 
oh, well, um, I'm assuming that these, this brother and sister are not married. And I was like, fair. (laughs) (laughs) And then they were like, well, I think that a lot of us in this room can agree that, you know, premarital sex is not a lot like immoral. So therefore this is immoral. Oh, Um, wow. So I wasn't prepared for that. That was sort of sneaky. Yeah. That's really clever. I got you there. I I feel bad using these. I feel like these are um, pretty stereotypical examples, but they are real examples. You know, I think if they happen to you, they're they're for a game. Yeah. So, I mean, I've noticed too here that uh, students are more likely to come from a culturally conservative background, um, that you might not want to make jokes about religion being dumb unless you want to offend them. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they're also, yeah, like I said, if anything, overly respectful and like very um, hierarchical, I guess. And and that can be tough sometimes because like they don't want to talk like it really in a seminar you i've found that i have to sometimes really work to get them to like give their opinion because they're like well you know my opinion isn't important you're the one in charge <laughs> tell me what's true you know it's like no that's not how it works so that's it it i've gotten used to it now i mean i've been here a while but it was sort of a surprise paul you have the like very recent comparison of like the Yale undergrads versus the U of T. I have though. I haven't, um, I haven't yet lectured at U of T. I've just taught seminars and actually, you know, I, I've taught a few seminars. They were sort of a little bit mixed, but, uh, I teaching, you know, some really good, some really great students at U of T, which are every bit as good as the students at Yale. And there's not, there's not much of a, of a difference, but I was wondering just about this, we're, we're end up talking about offense, and well, here's a, I'll tell you my policy and, and I know people disagree with it, but I, I really work hard to, when I teach in intro psych, which is my big lecture course. I don't make Donald Trump jokes. I don't make Republican jokes. I don't do it. And I, you know, I have really, you won't be surprised as sort of standard strong anti-Trump feelings that, uh, that people, that most academics do. But I feel that I want everybody in the class to feel not to feel welcome and comfortable. And I know. Even at Yale, if there's 500 kids in the class, there may be like 10 of them who, you know, are some small amounts. And so, and also for religion, I talk about, I give a straightforward, a lot of evolutionary psych, a lot of evolution, and I have a whole lecture on religion, but I try to do it in a way that somebody who is deeply religious would not find it hurtful. What about you? Do either of you succumb to Trump jokes? You go first. No, I would not make a Trump joke in my class. And... I think that like students do pick up on my political views. So I wouldn't say that I like approach like that. I'm like aiming for neutrality. It's, it's not that, but I think that's that, that is, there would be a much higher proportion of Trump supporters in my classes. Yeah, that's true. Um, and yeah, I just think that that would be like a, I think it would be disrespectful. It would be a way to, to communicate to those students. Like I'm not, um, like interested in, hearing their perspective or um, it I've asked students in my class as like a discussion question at some point, um, you know, if like, if your teachers are all biased, do you think that it would be good for us to like, like list what our biases were, you know, or tell, tell you them um, so that you could take those into account when you listen to us teach. And the, the most interesting answer that I've heard to that is no, because I want like even if like I know that you have some biases and they might disagree with like my own views or whatever, um, I like want at least to feel like my um, views will be valued and I can voice them in the class. And if you like, if you start it by saying that you have a bias against them, I'm not going to say them in the class. Um, that makes sense. So I I I thought that was a I thought that was convincing. I was like, that sounds like a good reason. Yeah. Yeah, I try and stay away from this like identity signaling stuff. And I'm sure that they could guess where I'm coming from if only based on base rates. Stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Stereotypes which are accurate about college professors. But but yeah, I mean it just it it seems gratuitous to me and it seems kind of unprofessional. And you really don't know where the students are coming from, and particularly in the smaller classes, the seminars, like they're they're all over the map. And they're definitely, you know, were some like Trump sympathizers, just that 
came out in the discussion and I was glad that I didn't um, say anything explicit about my political views. How about we take a quick break and then we come back and we talk about what we're actually trying to teach people. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. Uh, Mickey and I both check that account. If you're more an email sort of person, uh, the show's email account is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That will go to all three of us. You can find all of our episodes at fourbeers.com and you can drop us a note there as well if you'd like. Uh, finally, just a quick uh, plug to say if you're enjoying the show, Please do rate us and leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us, and we just like to read them as well. Uh, Alexa, you have been appearing on other podcasts, have you not? Yes, I I cheated on us. Look, I I don't feel that this has to be an exclusive relationship. And in fact, I'm happy (laughs) for you to enjoy the company of other podcasts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just because you want an open (laughs) podcast. (laughs) And I have a a couple things to tell you off air. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I was was a guest on uh, Clear Thinking by um, Spencer Greenberg. um, And we chatted about open science and whether it's sort of like the best approach to advancing knowledge, I guess you might say. Um, it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I listened to it and you had, I thought, a really interesting disagreement with him about uh, different scientific ideals and his idea of like the, what was it um, that he thought was like better than open science? <laughs> Oh yeah, he had he had come up with like a few terms um that I'm forgetting now, but yeah, inspired, something like that. Anyway, I'm sorry, Spencer. I really did listen, but I listen to podcasts while I'm doing other things and I half encode them. But so anyway, he had some objections or um I guess concerns that the open science approach was too constraining or too focused on uh, I guess convincing skeptics rather than following your passion, something like that. Right, right. Anyway, uh, super interesting discussion, and he seems like a smart dude. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, it was interesting to talk to somebody who, um, like not in my usual circles, who had really done like his research on this stuff and had a lot of opinions about like um, ways to, to think about open science. That's right. So we will put a link to that in the show notes as well for people to check out. Alexa, you are drinking a new beer. What is it? Yeah. This one is a Juice Bomb IPA from it's a, wait, Sloop okay. Brewing. It's it's all about the juices yep. today. I basically only buy uh, beer that has juice in the title. That's fair. Are you guys, you guys are not doing anything different? I Well, I haven't finished my beer yet. Yeah, it's big. It's these tall cans. I don't know. It's like... So it's high ABV. I I have no excuses. I suck. I'm sorry. You're you're the I, one. Who... I will carry the entire weight of making the opening beer noise for this. Session. Yes, thank you. You're. I, I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was it was a failure. It was a failure. It was a total failure. I the listeners nothing. will hear it. It happens. I'll, maybe I can in in, in you just just dub, just <laughs> yeah, post, exactly. just dub, put it in. <laughs> it was the most perfect silence I have ever. It was heard. dead quiet. <laughs> It was John Cage opening a beer. <laughs> uh, Paul, you're still on the GNTs. I, I am. I'm. I'm. I'm actually. I can. I could top this up a little bit. Uh, yeah, you should. Yeah. Okay. So we have some sound effects going on here. Let's all I will. Going. I will actually try to put it next to my. Okay. No, Brian. Uh, well, I did, sort yeah, of. I, Very quietly. Oh, there we go. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. And I, I, I can sort of like turn that up. I can. Yeah. I can amplify that that little bit uh okay so uh alexa anything else we need to talk about before we get back to our main topic no i think we can 
we can talk about teaching. Great. Yeah. So we've been talking about kind of our personal experiences in, in the first part. Um, but I, I think there's like a bigger question of like, okay, well, what are we actually trying to teach people? Right. Somebody comes to university and they're a psych major and like, what are we hoping that they learn? Uh, do we think that they're learning that? Um, could we be, I don't know, better about focusing our courses in a way that leaves people with something that's going to be like lasting and useful rather than something that they're going to forget after the final exam? Uh, Alexa, I'm going to give it to you first. Like, what do you think that we ought to be teaching people and are we actually doing that? Yeah. Okay. I have a few answers, I guess. So one answer, I, I guess it depends a bit on the class. Um, for classes that are part of the like sort of core psychology curriculum, I think that I it's important to consider students' expectations and maybe the expectations of um, of like people who will be considering their psychology degree as something that qualifies for them for something when they finish um, their undergraduate education. Um, but I do think that content matters to some degree. Um, so I don't think that it's just about skills or, you know, approaches or whatever. Um, and for instance, in like an intro psychology class, like I think it's important to, um, I don't know, expose students to basic ideas about the scientific method and what is what does psychology research look like? What are the basic areas of psychology research? Maybe it's useful to know a little bit about the brain. Um, so I think content matters. And I think that, you know, you could um, like fail to meet the expectations of your students if you didn't teach them things that will be expected of them later on in their educational careers or whatever. Um, I also think that um, oh, like a super boring answer to this question is like we're we're supposed to teach students critical thinking skills um i think that's a lot harder and more complex than than that answer suggests um i think that's a great thing to teach students but i think that it's very difficult um and maybe like a superficial version is teaching students just not like to immediately trust what authorities tell them or what the news tells them or what anybody tells them to like sort of have a surface level of skepticism about most of the things that they hear. But yeah, I mean, it would be great if we were teaching people like really rigorous critical thinking skills. And um, I don't think that, I, I think maybe like elements of that enter into my classes, but that's certainly not something that I've done in like a, uh, really like rigorous practiced way. Um, one thing that I do hope that students take from classes that they have with me is like the feeling of excitement about the like subject matter and about like learning new things and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that when you engage with like cool ideas with other people who want to talk about them, with maybe like a an instructor who's excited about them and maybe thinks makes you think about them in different ways or helps you to draw connections to other things. There's like, for me, that's like a really, really positive feeling is that like, I maybe like intellectual curiosity or something like that. And I don't think you really teach it, but maybe you um, model it or like, help draw it out of students or something like that. I, I think that that's something that I hope to accomplish with teaching. What about you guys? That's a fantastic answer. Um, when I was at my first year as an assistant professor at University of Arizona, I was part of a panel. I remember it was a panel, panel on teaching. And I was like the youngest person there. And somebody asked, what do you hope to get in your classes? What do you hope to, to achieve in your classes? And one by one, people said, you know, I want to help people be, my students be self-critical, to explore, to understand themselves, to appreciate. And, and it came to me and I said, well, I teach child development and I want to teach my students all about child development. <laughs> and, and, 
I'm still not sure whether that was a stupid answer or a smart answer, but I think part of what you say about content is right. If, if, if you're teaching a course on social psychology, students should walk away understanding the best theories of social psychology and what we know about social psychology and phenomena and everything like that. And I really believe that. I think that's sort of our primary thing, even if many of them will forget them later on. But we should teach, presumably, we are, we, our courses actually just report discoveries about the mind, things that we did, people didn't know before. That's why students aren't mm-hmm. wasting their time taking them. And I often think there's sort of an arrogance to professors. Oh, I'm going to teach my students how to critically think. And I'm thinking, man, do you know how to critically think? Because <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, I think my answer was just too limited. When I teach intro psych, I do want them. I, I'd be a failure if they didn't know who Freud was and who Skinner was and that the brain was involved in thinking and all that. But I also want to do some of the other things that you mentioned. And I guess one of the things is to convey the intellectual excitement of the field, to convey the idea that a lot of the questions that we ask about ourselves are empirical questions, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I've heard, I, you know, what, what I, I have, I'm most excited when I get to respond to a student who says something like, well, how could you, you know, no one could ever know whether such and so. And I say, sure, we can. There's for almost everything we can, we could figure out how to do it. It's an empirical question. It's not. And I want to get them to convey some of the excitement of our field because I think it is really exciting mm-hmm. and it's important to appreciate it. But mostly the content. So what, do you see them doing with the content? I, I don't mean that to be like a no. dickish question. I'm like actually curious. Like, it, I mean, I teach a lot of content too, and I do hope that they remember it. But then I'm like, okay, what are you going to do and now knowing about the fundamental attribution error? I, I mean, I guess it's nice that you know what it is now and you didn't before, but how does it improve your life? I kind of get stuck there sometimes. It's a view I have, which is almost religious. It's one of my views of pure faith, which is there's a value to knowing it in and of itself. Um, so take, you know, I think everybody should know Darwin's theory of natural selection. I think it explains so much of where life comes from. And I don't think it's any use at all for 99.99% of people. I think everybody should know that, you know, the earth revolves around the sun. And the brain is the source of mental life. And maybe even about the fundamental attribution error. Because these are things which, as a species, we've we've discovered. And it's just worth knowing. Yeah. Period. For intro psych, and, and maybe this would even be an easier target for a social psychology class, one thing that I like explicitly tell my students I want them to take from the class is the idea that you, like don't see the world as it truly is and that it's really hard to imagine um, what you would do in somebody else's situation. And I think those are, um, if people, I, I feel like I have been, like those ideas have shaped the way that I sort of like interact with the world in positive ways. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So even that, which I believe, um, but it does try to give sort of a, I don't know, like a news you can use justification, right? And I I do like the idea of just saying like, well, sometimes it's just better to know a thing than not know a thing. And, you know, about the humanities, you could say the same thing. I think people often try and justify it in terms of like, well, we're creating a better, more informed like citizenry or something. And maybe you could just say like, well, it's a world in which you've read Moby Dick is better than a world in which we, you haven't. Like it just enriches you to have had that experience. And I, I guess you could say it enriches you to like know that these discoveries have been made about human nature I mean, in the same way that like, yeah, astronomy or physics or, you know, whatever. Like, none of those things are really useful to me, but I like knowing a little bit about them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think in some way we, we couldn't really do what we did if we didn't think that, A, it's worth knowing this stuff. And, and B, in our fields, we have something worth, worth teaching. 
And it may be, it may be discoveries, it may be ideas, it may be even methods, it may be sort of broader ideas like a sort of humility about your understanding of the world, that everything is mediated through in different ways, perception and biases and culture and so on. Yeah, right. So I think that is a really powerful idea. And like the, the thing that I most hoped that people would walk away from the social psych course remembering. It's the idea that, you know, you don't see the world as it is. You see the world as it's interpreted by you. And I think that has a ton of implications. And they're, they're a little bit, again, we're getting into like, well, it can actually make your life better because it can help you see another person's perspective if you disagree with them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just also good to know that if it's true, like, you know, for its own sake. And, you know, I think we could argue about broader morals. Uh, I was um, talking to another intro psych instructor um, and she, a friend of mine, and she said, the main thing she wants to get across in her course is you're not as smart as you think you mm-hmm. are, that we have all these biases and everything. And I've said, that's funny because my course is you're much smarter than you think you are. <laughs> you're, you know, your, your mind is much more powerful. A lot more goes on. There's a huge wisdom from evolution and culture that far transcends what we think we're, we're capable of. And, you know, they both can't be right. Yeah. I mean, there, I get it. Those are obviously totally contradictory. I guess the underlying similarity is reality isn't quite what you think it is. Yeah. That's just neat. And yeah. And in some way, that's, that's the, that's the sort of idea of any science, which is, you know, physicists say the world appears, looks this way, but it's really this way. Biologists say things look this way, but they're really this way. Yeah. There does seem something that's like inherently rewarding about the experience of feeling like, Oh wow, I wonder if things are totally different than I thought they were. You know, that's like a fun experience to have and a fun experience to lead others to have or to to see others have, definitely. So we're talking about about lecturing for the most part. I think for seminars it's a little bit different. I think there's all of this too, but I I I liked what Alexis said. I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but there's sort of a a modeling of intellectual discourse and discovery. I think that's extreme. That's one thing you get in in a good university or college that you don't get over Coursera or online, which is you know the the, the idea of an intellectual discussion properly mm-hmm. done. I think that, I think that's really worth knowing. Again, maybe not for practical reasons. Maybe it's actually a detrimental skill because you know you're you're being all intellectual and every, and nobody else's, and and it might put you at disadvantage. But that, but the gift of being able to have an argument, have a discussion, make progress, even if people disagree, is just when done properly, is just such a thing. Yeah, and th- that's something where I feel like I'm really pushing the students here to be more disagreeable. I mean, they're so nice and they're so Canadian and they never want to disagree with each other. And like, I feel like half this seminar is like forcing them into situations where they have to, I I like literally assign some groups to take one position and other groups to take the opposite position in order to force them to argue with each other because otherwise they just completely refuse to. Are you like, are you worried that they won't make as much progress if they don't disagree? Or are you worried that they're being dishonest with you? I just worry that they're not thinking about it that carefully and that because they don't like to say that anybody else is wrong, they'll just reflexively... It, it It's a way of not really engaging, I think. It's like, well, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, okay. It's like you don't really like get that far with that attitude. Like yeah. they're like, yeah, I I I don't quite understand where it comes from, but the, it's very hard not to to knock them off of being a hardcore moral relativists, mm. and maybe it comes from particularly you know Toronto is so diverse, and I feel like Canadians in particular have this ethos of like being non-judgmental um and saying well your cultural practices are this and mine are these and that's fine but like even getting them to agree that like you know cultures with slavery are worse mm-hmm. than those without you know they're like they don't want to go there 
I have a I have a classroom thing I do after I get them. I ask their views, and they often they just say they're all relativists, and there's no right and yeah. wrong. It's all cultural. And I said, well, it's early in the course. I tell them that one of my policies in class is to grade the minorities less uh, than the white kids. Be, you know, and so I just wanted to get get it down on a table so they're aware of that. And sometimes they can't. And of course, they're smart kids, so they know what I'm doing. But sometimes they can't even help. They say, well, that's wrong. Yeah, I realize out of context, this this sort of thing may, may <laughs> this, get me in trouble when this it, is going to be the cold moment for, yeah. the, for yeah. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually give the minorities higher grades. Ah, okay, <laughs> so all good then. In that case, that's good. Yeah, no, that's great. I should I should steal that. I I really you, should. you could definitely you know this is my great career advice to my colleagues um, <laughs> because I, I I think the reason I think basically. Regardless of whether relativism, realism, the broader question of what we should endorse, I don't think people are more rel- relativists. I think when you ask people about social injustice that really bothers them or some cruel behavior of a friend or something like that, people just say, that's freaking wrong or what a wonderful person. Yeah. I don't think we're on it. I think relativism is the intellectual position people hold. Yeah. But we're at the core. We think there's good and evil. Yeah. I haven't seen very many people who um, don't like violate their intellectual relativist standpoint at some point. So is this something that your students in seminars tell you as well, Alexa? I That's a good question. Um I I do think that like some I see people default to relativism because in some ways it's easier. Um but yeah, I mean like Paul says people um stances on other on other topics like they, they they violate that usually at some point i show i show in my first i assign my first class two ted talks one by sam harris which is a straightforward utilitarian view there's a moral landscape you know cultures might have the totally wrong ideas of what's good and what's bad another one by jonathan Haidt, who talks about his uh his moral foundations and talks about all cultural and then i at one point i asked which one do they favor and they favor height overwhelmingly um and there's there's all sorts of other issues on here like style personal style and so on i think sam is very provocative when he does this stuff but um but that does seem to be the sort of default intellectual view of a lot of people i i am curious how how universal it is i mean toronto is a very liberal place and so is so is yale yeah i i sort of expected that alexa would have a very like different you know experience with with her students Mm, I don't know. I mean, I suspect that I have lots of students who are, um, I guess, like moral absolutists. Um, but I think that, I think people sort of see that that's a more challenging view to defend, which is not to say, yeah, I mean, I think I think to defend that you have to say, or people perceive the defense of that as saying, like, my morals are right and other people's morals are wrong. And if other people are from other cultures, too bad, that kind of thing. Like it's just like a more um, controversial thing to have to defend. So it's easy to say like, Oh, I'm a relativist. And those are the people who tend to speak up. I think I will add like to our um, topic earlier about what we're trying to do with teaching that this might be controversial, but I also think particularly in the context that I'm teaching Um, I do think that part of me wants to expose people to views or perspectives that they haven't been exposed to before. Um, yeah, in particular, maybe people who have like grown up in a really like conservative Christian households and, um, now are at college and this is like their first exposure to new ideas. And I think that that might sound like I'm trying to convert people's uh, people to uh, liberal ideologies, but it's called grooming. Alexa, grooming. they call it's it grooming. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that much like Paul thinks that people are in denial when they say that they're relativists, I think that some teachers are in denial when they say that they don't have views that they um, are trying to expose their students to, maybe um, make attractive to their students. And we do it in, in a lot of, a lot of subtle ways too, like who we assign, what we assign as readings. Um, 
you know, yeah, whether exactly. we're concerned about the, the gender balance or ethnic balance of our readings. It's, there's a million ways in which you signal what matters and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's some kind of intellectual orientations that are just like totally incompatible with what we're doing. So if you're like, you know, well, I know this is right because God said so, it's, you know, that's just not, that's not what we're about. Right. Do you feel like we've, we've covered the topic Anything else we want to add in there? I think we're good. Okay. Professor, best job ever? Uh, I think it's definitely in the top 10. You know, in some way, it's, it's, there's a lot of ways to be a professor, and I think some ways are, are, are some situations. Some people have it really badly, but but there's so much. We get to, to explore interesting questions. We get to hang around uh, cool people, and often cool young people, which is nice. And we get to teach which is a really freaking privilege if you think about it. Yeah, I agree. So we were talking before the show about, you know, the non-monetary benefits of this job, which I think are like, are huge. And I think for many of us, we could, you know, be getting paid more doing something else and we choose to do this. I mean, because it's awesome. And like I say that, like recognizing how lucky we are to, have these jobs and to be able to do this, but it really is. If we were teaching five courses a, a semester across three different campuses, uh, a third of the money, then the <laughs> rewards are less. But 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 for what we're doing, what each of us, each of the three of us is doing, it seems like roughly the right amount to be to be satisfying and engaging. Well, Alexa wants to teach more weird. <laughs> yep, dissatisfied over here. <laughs> Thumbs down. More teaching, please. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure, as always. Thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Yep. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul.